0: Welcome to the Redeemer Community Church podcast. The following audio is from Redeemer Community Church located in Johnson City, Tennessee. We hope it will be encouraging to you as you listen. God, thank you so much for this morning, for gathering your people together to Just ascribe worth to who you are. As we begin to to look to your word, we ask that it would have a transforming effect on our lives, that it would penetrate deep into our hearts and bring conviction, but bring healing and, and bring true life change that would be more and more like your son, Jesus Christ. God, we know that our ability to do that is completely powerless without you. So God, let your Holy Spirit work mightily this morning. It's in your holy name that we pray, amen. Well, I remember um, growing up, we were an Air Force family, and so we lived in a bunch of different neighborhoods and states and cities. But the one that stood out to me the most, the neighborhood, the street that probably had the most forming effect on my childhood was Shadow Cliff. And I remember in fifth grade when I reached legendary status. Like I remember when I became a legend on Shadow Cliff, we were playing hide-and-go-seek in my, in my buddy Phil's yard. And, and so we established the rules where the front porch was base, all of his yard was boundaries, but you couldn't go outside of that. And, and really when you play hide-and-go-seek as a kid and it's all the neighborhood children coming together, you have a pretty big age gap. So we had third graders that didn't know what they were doing, all the way up to eighth graders that were kind of punks. And we were, we were kind of stuck in the middle. And so whenever an older kid is, is it, when they're doing the seeking, what they normally do is they, they go to base, they count their time, ready or not, here I come. And then as they go to the backyard where everyone's hiding, the older kids always mess with the younger kids because every younger kid thinks they're about to die. So it's just mad chaos as they're running around screaming. And and the older kids never tag the young kids, just make them feel the fear of God. And then they kind of move on to the older kids, someone that's more comparable to their athletic ability or to their their, um, physical traits, right? Well, I remember at one point, Alan, he was an eighth grader and and I was a fifth grader. Well, Alan was it. And so he came around the corner after counting, all the little kids scattered in fear. And then it was down to me, Philip and Matt. Now the backyard had a a hot tub and a deck. On the deck, there was a, a Platform that you could climb up to a little bit higher, and then just multiple trees. And so I climb up to the platform, and I've got a bird's eye view, and I see all of the kids running around. I see them scatter to base, and then all of a sudden, it's just it's just us three, right? It's 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 Matt and Philip, myself, and then Alan and Alan is looking at, at Matt and Phillip, and he's trying to figure out which one will I go for, and you can tell he's, he's, he's gonna zone in and attack one. Well, they run this amazing crossing pattern, and, I, and he got discombobulated, and, and he didn't know what to do, and so they crossed him, then they ran around the corner safely to base, and I was like, that was amazing. That was a great move, not realizing that now it was down to just me. And so I'm standing up on this platform in awe of my two friends that just escaped the eighth grader, but then I realized. Uh Uh-oh, I'm stuck. There's one way up to this platform and one way down. And so Alan begins to climb up the ladder, and and he's looking at me kind of like, are you really going to make me walk all the way over there and tag you? And and so in this moment, every other kid has gone from base to the corner. So they're at the corner of the yard. They're looking at the platform, just wondering what's about to go down. But they don't want to go too close because what if he turns and attacks them? So they're staying, staying far, watching this. And in a moment of stupidity, I stepped over the railing. And now I'm looking down, which felt like 20 feet. Turns out it was 10, but it felt like 20. And I'm looking down 10 feet, and I'm thinking, I could do this. And as he starts walking towards me, in a moment of greater stupidity, I jumped. I jumped off, this was before parkour was even a thing, I hit and rolled, didn't know what happened, and got up and started running. And as I'm running, every other kid's jaws dropped at the corner, and as I come to the corner, going from the backyard to the front yard, we turned in unison, just everyone, together, and we're running, and my buddy goes, you jumped! I was like, I did! And then we came around, into the base, I was like, Man, and for years, we talked about the moment, the stupidity of jumping off of the platform, and no one, as far as I know, ever jumped off again. I reached legendary status. You know, but as a kid, you really want to be a hero, right? As a kid, you dream about being um, a hero or participating in heroic feats. That's why in the driveway, as a kid, I would, I would do the last second shot with Michael Jordan, or in the backyard, we'd be you know, Troy Aikman to Michael Irving and throw the touchdown pass. Or on the trampoline, we'd replay Karate Kid, one leg, kicking the guy in the dirt bike. Like, we, we, we loved living in those legendary moments. Well, as you get older, your idea of, of heroic, of who the heroes are, kind of shifts from, from sports figures and movies and celebrities to more kind of street-level people, your, your first responders, your teachers, and, and the ordinary everyday people who are changing lives. And, and you can still want to be a hero. just looks a little different. And this desire to be a, a new type of hero is noble. But if we're not careful, that desire can become one of the greatest stumbling blocks to our faith. Right? if we're not careful, that desire to be a hero can become one of the greatest stumbling blocks to our faith. Because when, when you're the hero, right, you're the person people lean on. When you're the hero, you're the person who has all the answers. You're the one who's always strong. You're the one who has it all together. And when you embrace that identity and feel like that's who you have to be, What happens is is in your faith, you unknowingly begin to find worth in what you bring to the table. You find worth in what you can do instead of what Christ has done. And this self-reliance begins to pull us away from experiencing God's nearness. So today, I want to talk about that. I want to show the destructive nature of self-reliance and how when we lean into ourselves and what we bring to the table instead of Christ, and who he is, we destroy our relationship with God, and we destroy our relationship with others. Both of these things are destructive and dangerous, and they have a way of pulling us away from experiencing God's nearness. As we're talking about the different things, maybe you have missed a few. We're in the middle of a series called Drift. And what we're doing is we're talking about the different things that pull us away from experiencing God's nearness, Now, we know that there's a reality, an objective reality, that God is always near, but there's a subjective experience of that reality, and sometimes we kind of waver on feeling if God's near or not. So we can mess that up through distorting the gospel. We can mess that up through false identities. We can mess that up through cheapening God's grace. We can even lose sight of that when we go through really hard times in life. But today, I want to see how self-reliance is one of the most destructive things that pulls us away from God's nearness. So Genesis 32. Genesis 32, one of my favorite stories of someone who moves from the illusion of self-reliance to the reality of God dependence is Jacob. So let's pick up in in chapter 32, verse 22. It says, the same night... He arose and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his 11 children and crossed the ford of the Jabbok, right? And so so you might be like, who's he? That's Jacob. So let's back up a little bit because it says the same night. So let me give you some context to what's happening in the life of Jacob right now. Genesis 1 through 11 is all about how the world falls apart. Then after that, we begin to trace or begin to highlight some key figures that God uses in his story of redeeming and restoring and saving the world, namely Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Right? So, so Isaac was Abraham's son. He had twin boys, Esau and Jacob. Now Esau and Jacob couldn't have been more different. Like Esau was a hairy little Ewok looking kid, and Jacob was smooth-skinned. All right. It, it talks about how, how Esau loved to be in the field and loved to hunt. Jacob was soft-spoken and preferred to be inside. Esau was like his dad's dude while Jacob was kind of a mama's boy, right? They were, they were completely different guys. And because of this, they had a very rocky relationship, right? At one point, Esau comes in from the field. He's been working hard, hunting hard, and he's just completely famished. He feels like he's on the verge of dying if he doesn't get something to eat. And because Jacob took home economics instead of shop class in high school, he's fixing some porridge and it smells really good. And, and Esau's like, give me some of that or I'm about to die. And Jacob kind of pulls it back and goes, uh, what will you give for it? It's like, what will you give me? And he goes, why don't you give me your birthright? And so the birthright doesn't really mean much to Esau. And so he goes, all right, fine. You can have my birthright. Just give me the stew. And so he eats the soup and gives away his birthright. Now, the birthright was kind of a big deal. It meant that when your father dies, you get double the inheritance as others. It means that you're going to be the one with authority, the head of the house. But also in Genesis, God always directly spoke to the head of the family. So that meant that you'd be the one that God would directly speak to and work through. And basically, Esau forfeits all of that for a bowl of soup, right? A couple of years later, right. Um, Esau thinks, okay, that's fine, I lost all of that stuff, but I can still be blessed by my dad. You see, there's the birthright and then a father's blessing, and a father could still bless you with an incredible inheritance outside of your birth order. So Esau thought, well, I'm dad's favorite, and so sure, I might not have all those responsibilities and rights as the head of the house, but I can still get hooked up with, with my dad's stuff. Well, then as his dad's dying and on his deathbed and blind, Jacob shows up in a Chewbacca costume, right? Like apparently Esau was really hairy. And he shows up and fools his dad and cons him and gets the blessing that was meant for Esau. So now Jacob has taken the birthright and the blessing. Esau's devastated and it says that he comforted himself with thoughts of how he would kill his brother. You know, some people fall asleep counting sheep, Esau like sharpened a knife and thought about murdering his brother, right? It's like, oh, I can go to sleep now, right? Like things were rocky, things were bad. And so because he's on the verge of death, Jacob runs. He, he bolts and goes across what's known as the Fertile Crescent. And then as he crosses the land, he sees a beautiful girl named Rachel. And he's like, I want that. And he falls in love and he, he meets her dad, Laban, and says, like, I would work seven years to marry her. And he's like, all right, why don't you work for me? And so he works, and then um, his dad is is supposed to give him Rachel's hand in marriage, but the night they're supposed to consummate the, the wedding, the night that something goes down in the bedroom, it's dark. He's, he's probably had some alcohol. Um, his dad makes a switch and puts Leah in bed instead of Rachel. Leah's the older sister that no one wanted. Leah was the older sister that needed to be married off first before he could marry off Rachel. So he cons and deceives Jacob into marrying the unwanted sister. Right so Jacob deceived his brother deceived his dad now the deceiver gets deceived right and and so then Jacob still wants Rachel so he he commits to work another 7 years and and then eventually he's got these two wives uh, 12 sons and and he's worked 20 years 20 years with his father-in-law and he feels like my dad's kind of like my father-in-law's been just deceptive he's he's sh- Cheated me out of things that I deserve. And, like, you know, apparently, like I said, Jacob would have much rather preferred, you know, like home economics, um, but he would have been really good with FFA. Like, he was agriculturally gifted. And so, because of that, his 20 years working with his father in law, he made him a huge profit. Like he was really prosperous with raising a flock and raising a herd and and making money. And so after 20 years, he's like, I want to get out of this. I wanna, I wanna make my own money, I wanna be out of the shadow of my father-in-law. So he takes his family, his two wives, his sons, his servants, his daughters, and he he leaves. And so he's heading out. And and then basically he's so- I want you guys to get the picture here. All right, behind him, like he's leaving, behind him is his father-in-law, who's who just got basically dropped in the middle of the night. In front of him, he's headed back home Is Esau. The last time he met Esau, what did Esau want to do? Kill him, all right? So he's between his father-in-law and his brother. He's stuck between a rock and a hard place, all right? And so he kind of makes things right with his father-in-law, but not really. You can't really trust anyone in in this situation. But then he gets word that his brother's headed his way with 400 soldiers, And so at this point, he basically separates his family into two halves. He's like, okay, let's divide. Like if he kills this half, at least this half will survive. If he kills that half, at least this half will survive. So he divides his family. He sends a bunch of gifts to Esau, just hoping it'll work. And that's what happens this night. All right? So that same night, the night that he knows Esau is headed towards him, the night that he's stuck between a rock and a hard place, the night that he, he feels like he's about to die, he divides his family. All right? Verse 23, it says, He took them and sent them across the stream and everything else he had. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip So Jacob called David to that place, Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. Then it says, the sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. All right, so, so what's happening here is Jacob begins to wrestle with someone at night. Right, this night, he is in a wrestling match. We come to find out that he's wrestling with God. Right? And so we see two things. One, we see the strength of God, that all God has to do is touch his hip, and it's going to cripple Jacob. But we also see Jacob's desperation and determination. And it says that he prevailed. That's something that, well, the first time I read that, I was like, prevailed? Did a mere mortal conquer God? What does it mean that Jacob was victorious? What does it mean that Jacob conquered? What does it mean that Jacob prevailed in this situation? All right. Verses 29 through 30, we see that it says that he saw God face to face. This could mean two things. One, he might be talking about how God made an exception, that generally no one can see God and live. So the fact that he saw God and lived, God made an exception. Or this face to face could be a figure of speech where he's talking about being near to God or having a personal encounter right? But something that, that God tells Jacob is that he's striven with man, that he's striven with God. What we realize is that Jacob's whole life has been marked by struggle. Jacob's whole life has been marked by struggle. And this wrestling match with God is the climax of that struggle, right? And so in his struggle, he learned something, right? In his struggle, he learned something, right? And that, that's what it means for him to prevail, You see, up until this point in his life, Jacob has been successful because of his strength. Jacob has been successful because of his skill. Jacob has been successful because of his smarts. But at this moment, in this struggle between a rock and a hard place, he realizes that everything he brings to the table doesn't matter unless God shows up. You see, he prevailed because he finally realized what he needed most. In all of life, what he needs is God and God's presence. He's, he's in a place of saying, God, like, if you don't show up, God, I'm not going to make it. I've got my, my father-in-law behind me. I've got my brother in front of me. And it doesn't matter how smart I am, how skilled I am, how strong I am. It doesn't matter about anything that I bring to the table. God, if you don't show up, like, I'm not going to make it. And his prevailing was finally coming to the understanding that his self-reliance was just an illusion and that the reality is that he was fully and desperately dependent on God. When's the last time that you found yourself in that position? When's the last time you found yourself wrestling with God, saying, God, if you don't show up, I'm not going to make it. Maybe it's with your job. Maybe with a broken relationship. Maybe it was something physical. What is it for you where you're like, I've been there. I know the weight of what he's talking about. Well, for some people, these moments of God, if you don't show up, I'm not going to make it. For some people, those are moments that are far and few between. And other people, you find yourself there fairly regularly. But the truth is, is that whether it's the easy times in life or the tough times in life, at all times, we are fully dependent on God, whether we realize it or not. I think about my grandma. My grandma just went to get her pacemaker checked. And she goes to the doctor, checks her pacemaker, and the doctor says, your heart's not working. Like, your heart's bringing nothing to the table. In fact, like, if this pacemaker stops, you die. That's concerning, all right? And so she has some questions because up to this point in her mind, she thought the battery of my pacemaker will last eight years. But that eight-year calculation is dependent on my heart doing some of the work. So if my heart's doing none of the work, what if that battery doesn't last eight years? What if I'm not scheduled to have this thing changed for eight years In year seven the battery dies? If my heart doesn't do anything, that means I die. Like, I stop breathing, Right, And so we find like in this pacemaker is that whether she realizes it or not, whether she's thinking about it or not, the truth is is that she is fully dependent at all times on that thing making her heart beat. Well, in the same way, whether times are good or times are tough, whether it's easier, whether it's hard, whether we realize it or not or are thinking about it, the truth is, is we are always at every moment fully dependent on God for the life that we live right? And so when we live in these self-reliant, independent um, seasons of life where we think that what we bring to the table is enough, what happens is we begin to experience a drift from God. When we don't realize we need Him, or we're not pressing in and admitting how much we need Him, we think we're okay. And in those moments of thinking we're okay, it'll feel like God is distant, Think of it like this. When you press into Jesus for the big stuff and the small stuff, you live in a place where your awareness to God's presence and power is more fully experienced. Let me read that again. This is what we need to realize with this. When we press into Jesus for the small stuff and the big stuff, when we live in a place where we are aware of our need for God, then his presence and power will be more fully experienced. So one of the first things that that destroys or is destructive and dangerous to our relationship with God and experiencing his nearness is this temptation to be self-reliant or this temptation to do life thinking that it's about what we bring to the table and what we could do instead of what Christ has done. The second thing, right, this is, this is two, there's two, areas of this. The second thing, the other way that we, we our self-reliance is dangerous. The other way that our self-reliance can, can pull us from God's nearness is in the way that it pulls us away from Christ-centered community. Another way it's dangerous is in the way that it pulls us away from Christ-centered community. Flip over to Ecclesiastes 4. Ecclesiastes 4 is to the right. Ecclesiastes 4. If you hit Revelation, you went a little too far. All right, um, So Ecclesiastes 4 is this beautiful, poetic chapter where Solomon, who wrote it, is contrasting the difference between an individualistic lifestyle and a life-giving communal lifestyle. He's contrasting the difference between being an individual in life and the nature of that versus the nature of living in life-giving community. And so in the the first few verses, he shows how when we live for ourselves— when we live independent of others and, and live self-reliant lives, it becomes harming and destructive to the world we're in. But then he goes on to show how it's harmful and destructive to ourselves. In verses seven and eight, he says that it's painful and lonely. And he says that like, this individual lifestyle, this self-reliant, independent lifestyle is painful and lonely which is interesting because Cigna, the, the insurance provider, recently did a study, and NPR reported on it, and in their study, they showed that, that 54% of adults feel like no one truly knows them. It showed that 50%, 56% of adults feel that those that they're with aren't actually with them, and that 40% feel a lack of companionship, they feel like their relationships aren't meaningful, and they feel completely isolated. When you take that study and other studies, you find that half of America is experiencing the pain of loneliness. I would say that half of us, if not more in this room, are getting that. You're saying, like, I, I, I'm i there. I feel like I don't have any friendships that are real. I don't feel like people really know me. They know the person they see on Friday night, and that's it. Or I feel like I don't have any true companionship, or there's not a meaningful depth, friendship. Like so many of us today are saying like, I get that. And so what Solomon does in verses nine through 12 is show that God created us for something better. Look at verses nine through 12. He says, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. I love the honesty of life that Solomon paints here. Solomon, he's talking about life, and he says, there's going to be pits that you fall into. There are going to be nights that are cold and dark. There are going to be people who, no matter what you do, they're just always going to be against you. So look, if if you're walking through life lonely and by yourself being self-reliant and independent, like when life comes at you, it's going to hurt even worse. But if you're in authentic community, if you're surrounding yourself with people that are doing life with you, when you fall, someone's there to extend their hand and to pull you up. When you're cold, there are others to come around you and to provide warmth. When life comes against you, someone's going to have your back. You see, we all need, we all need community and deep friendships. We all have this desire to be known and to know others. But the problem is that takes commitment and that takes work. And when when those things rise up, people tend to run the other direction. Right? It's like, I know I need friendship. I know I need community. I know I need people to know me. But then when it takes commitment, when it takes work, instead of fighting for that, we turn and just pull away from everything and begin to live by ourselves. And then in our in our loneliness or in our isolation, we feel the weight of those pits. We feel the sting of the cold. And we, we, we feel the, the attacks of the world. And we feel completely defeated because no one's there with us. Like, we are created in. Need desperately to have community, right? In Matthew, in Matthew twenty-two, someone asked Jesus what the greatest commandment is. He says it's to love God and love others. Right? Let's paraphrase: Love God, love others. How many commandments is that? Two. Right? What is the greatest commandment? Singular. Right? He's asked a singular question, and he he says it's to love God and love others. He makes a singular request. Two things becoming one. Why does he do that? Why does he make a a request for one commandment and take two and make those two one? Because they're inseparable. You can't pull them apart. Listen to this. You can't fully experience a loving relationship with God without doing life with others where Christ-like love is both given and received. That's why Jesus doesn't separate those. Listen, you can't fully experience a loving relationship with God without doing life with others where Christ-like love is both given and received. 1 John 4.12 says this, no one has ever seen God. Just stop there real quick. No one has ever seen God. What he's saying is that no one can tangibly see God's nearness. Okay, like we can feel and experience it, but no one can tangibly see God's nearness as long as sin is in the world. There will be a day, but right now, no one can see tangibly God's nearness, right? Then he says this, but if we love one another, God abides in us or lives through us, And his love is perfected in us. In other words, what he's saying here is when we become the hands and the feet and the mouth of Jesus, when we do the things that Jesus would do, when we say the things that Jesus would say, when we love others like he's loved us, we become a tangible expression and a visible expression of God's nearness to those we're around. Here's what he's like. He's like, look, no one can see tangibly God's nearness, but God gives us community that when we become the hands and feet and mouth of Christ to each other, people can then begin to tangibly feel and experience God's nearness through us being Christ to each other. So think about that. I want you guys to think about that. Like, we are one of God's avenues. One of God's just pathways for us to experience and to feel his nearness is us loving on each other. It's him working through us to be near to others, right? And so if this is your community, right, you're here, you're doing life, and you pull away from that, Okay, if one of God's avenues to show you his nearness is this group and you pull away from that, what you're doing is you're robbing yourself of one of the biggest ways God wants to show himself to you. So instead of letting God show himself, when you pull away from it, you're going to be like, man, I just feel like God's not here anymore. I feel like God's distant. I feel like no one knows me or loves me. I feel isolated. I feel lonely. I'm feeling the sting and the pain of life. God, where are you? And God's saying, I'm right here. I have this community of people that I want to show myself to you, but when you pull away from it, you can't experience that. You see, the reason why Jesus combines those two commandments is because we can't separate them. For us to be in a fully loving relationship with God, we need to also be in community where we're loving each other like Christ loved us. But let's take it a step further. Not only are you robbing yourself of an avenue that God wants to show himself to you, you're robbing others of how God wants to show himself through you. You're robbing others of how God wants to tangibly use your life to express his nearness to them. Like we are called to live in community with one another. So if you feel distant from God, let me ask you this, right? If, if you're in a place today and you're like, I just, I feel distant. How are you intentionally doing life with others so they can show you Christ and so you can show them Christ? Right? Like that, that's a pretty big key here. If you feel distant from God today, how are you intentionally doing life with others so they can show you Christ and so you can show them Christ. Look, I, I, love, I love that Redeemer focuses in on relationships. Like when you gather in a circle, that's to express that value. We're, we're, we're looking at each other. We're worshiping with each other because our goal is not to center ourselves around a stage. But if we're gonna do life, we have to center ourselves around a table. Who will you sit down with this week and say, I'm going to intentionally grab dinner with them. I'm going to have some people over to my house, or I'm going to invite some people out. Who are you going to pursue this week to do life with? Because if you're not doing life with someone, you're robbing yourself of a way that God wants to show himself to you, and you're robbing others of a way that God wants to show himself to them. Let me recap this real quick. We weren't created to be self-reliant individuals. We were created to be joyfully dependent on Christ and on community, both vertically with God and horizontally with others. So if we want to experience God's nearness, we have to move from the illusion of our independence to the reality of our God dependence. So how does the gospel apply to this? How, how do we take the truth of the gospel and apply it to our, our desire and our tendency to live as self-reliant people? Look, I am painfully aware of my limitations and insufficiencies in life. I am painfully aware of that. But I live in a world that is constantly telling me that I can do it. I live in a world that's constantly feeding me these these lies that there's power inside of me that I can tap into. That if I just read this book on being more productive without burning out, that I'll have a greater capacity to run after these things. That if I just muster up the strength, if I just sleep a little less, or if I just do this to harness some more energy, that I can somehow find a way to get this done. And so so in the culture that constantly tells us that we can do it, that in us is enough, that, that we are able to accomplish what is in front of us on our own, what happens, all right, what happens in that is we forget, and this is me, I forget. When I lean into myself and what I bring to the table, I forget how much I need the gospel. I forget how much I need the Holy Spirit. I forget how much I need Christ-centered community. You see, when we let the world speak into our lives and to prop up our strength and what we bring to the table, it minimizes Jesus, it minimizes our need for Jesus. But the cross, the gospel, in turn maximizes our need for Jesus. You see, in the gospel, we don't boast in our strength, we boast in our weakness. In the gospel, we realize that what we bring to the table is never enough, that we need Christ for salvation that we cannot accomplish in our own, but it's him and him alone. It's through faith and by grace that we are saved. And that same initial movement of salvation continues through every moment of life. We realize just as much as we need Christ for salvation, we need him for the life that we're living today. This is why Jesus teaches us to pray for our daily bread when we pray, give us this day our daily bread, we are reminding ourselves of two things. One is that we need Christ for our physical strength, and two, we need Christ for our spiritual strength. But in that prayer, we remind ourselves and we remember that we are desperately dependent on Christ. God, thank you so much for your word. God, I know in this room today, there are those who are feeling like you're so far. There are those who are feeling like you've just left them or that you're gone and they just don't know what's happened. God, help us all to be honest with ourselves. How dependent are we on you today? God, reveal to us things that we need to confess, (laughs) areas that we need to to admit that if you don't show up, we're not going to make it whether it's the big stuff or even the small stuff. God, there are those here today that are feeling so alone, but they're isolated from community. God, I ask that you would provide real friendships this week, that you would create new ones or resurface old ones. And God, I ask that you would give all of us strength and power to not run from those, but to pursue them, to be committed and to do the hard work. God, we can't do it without you. We're dependent on you. But God, draw us near and help us to be a church where we are doing life with each other in such a way that we are experiencing your nearness through each other, but where we're showing your nearness as well. God, let us both receive and give a Christ-like love. God, develop in us a joyful dependence on Christ and on community. your name we pray, amen. Thank you so much for listening to this audio from Redeemer Community Church in Johnson City, Tennessee. You can connect with us and find out more information at redeemercommunity.com.